Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Hosea, verses from chapter 7, 9, and 10. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This is God's word. So as Dale comes, let me introduce uh, you to a friend of mine. Uh, this is Dale McCracken. I'm, I'm imagine I was sitting back there, I was thinking more of you probably know his wife, Misty. <laughs> who's working with our children, but uh, Dale and Misty uh, are new to our church. They About a year ago, they started attending here. Uh, I don't, I don't want to steal his thunder, but part of, uh, part of Dale's story is he was a pastor for many, many years. He may even talk about this morning that he, he was a pastor before he was a Christian. That is possible, believe it or not. Uh, and, uh, and so he, they have been worshiping with us, like I said, for about a year. Uh, Misty's working with our children, and uh, Dale's doing some seminary classes because even, you know, in his denomination, that wasn't uh, a necessity, and ours it is. Uh, so I just, I just want to introduce you to my friend. He's going to come and preach to us this morning. I'm excited about that. It's, I think it's probably the first time you've preached it since a year ago, right? So it's going to be an emotional time for him because when you do this for a living and then you don't, that's hard. Uh, but I want to ask you to pray for him too, not just this morning, but um, pray that God would open a door of ministry among us. Pray for a church planting opportunity. Pray. We're, we're just asking God to continue to multiply uh, the ministry of our church. He continues to send us men who are called and, he, and equipped to do that, and so we rejoice in how God continues to provide for us, but I think you're going to enjoy uh, hearing from him this morning. So as he comes, can I pray for, I'm going to pray for him specifically, and then Dale come and, and share with us. So Father, thank you for my friend for the joy it has been to get to know he and his sweet family, for how quickly they've become friends to our family. Our boys have become friends. Uh, I really am grateful for them, and I do pray now as he comes that you open his mouth to speak uh, your words. Oh, I thank you. I know it's the preacher's just rock-solid foundation, the words in Isaiah that say that, say that the word, the, your word never goes forth and without accomplishing the purpose for which it's been sent. So would you send forth your word? Uh, would you open our hearts, the fallow ground that Hosea talks about there, would you, would you find us this morning to be not the stony soil or the rocky, the rocky soil or the, the, the soil that's been choked by the weeds that are the cares and anxieties of this world, but the good soil that's been tilled by the Spirit that receives the word with gladness and produces a harvest a hundredfold. That's what my desire is for our church. And so make us like that this morning as he comes to share with us. Anoint him with your Holy Spirit uh, in power and wisdom. Uh, give him clarity um, and vision in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things for his sake and in his name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, happy 
New Year. As Jonathan says, you get extra Jesus points for coming today. I thought uh, we might be able to use some of those points to turn in next week so we don't have to come to his mandatory meeting. <laughs> might be a good idea. He's been talking about them for a long time. Maybe we can start using them. Uh, I've preached a few times in the past, and I'm used to a bigger podium than this, uh, one that I can punch and kick and do all kinds of stuff to, so I better not do that today. Uh, won't, uh, won't have much to lean on. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that for each that has an ear, that you give him uh, the ability to hear this morning. And Lord, for each that does not have an ear to hear, give him ears so that he can hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The world moves for love. It kneels before it in awe. This is a quote from M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village. And I want to read it to you one more time. The world moves for love, it kneels before it in awe. I believe this is a good way to explain where the book of Hosea leaves you. It leaves you kneeling before the love of God in awe. The book of Hosea is a love story between God and his people. It's the love story of a man who loves a woman who cannot Stay faithful to him. It's the love story of a people whose very nature prevents them from being faithful to their God. A God who will love them no matter what. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's you. God will love you no matter what. This is exactly how Jesus feels about you. No matter what you did, last night on New Year's night, no matter what you've been fantasizing about, no matter how many times you have surrendered to the same stupid behavior, Jesus will love you no matter what. This is the most important thing to remember about Hosea. It's about Jesus' love affair with you, his bride, a love affair that's stronger than death. Hosea is God's romance novel, only it's a true story. Hosea pulls no punches, both about the love God has for you and the kind of person that you really are. The book of Hosea is also about adultery. Adultery is what happens when you take on other lovers of your soul, when other gods sit on the throne of your heart. For the Israelites, it was the Baals, fertility gods who promised prosperity and pleasure. Pleasure because intimate acts were one way to get the Baals to give you what you wanted. And prosperity because what you really wanted was a jackpot. So you would lay with cult prostitutes and put totems in your yard and cross your fingers and hope that the gods would come through for you. For you, though, it's not the bells. For you, it's a thousand counterfeit gods 
gods that you look to in order to give your life a sense of meaning and purpose. Your functional God. I don't mean the God that you say you believe in. I mean the God that you actually live your life out as believing. Your functional God is the thing you think if only you had it, your life would matter. It's what you live for and long for. Acclaim, comfort, a carefree life, so to speak. And whatever sits on the throne of your heart, you worship. The Bible calls them idols of the heart. They make life worth living. And this is the adultery of the book of Hosea. And not far behind is prostitution. Now, I'm going to tell you something really quick this morning. I'm using light language for you because you and I are kind of like on a first date. This is my first time up here, and so I have to pretend I don't use really bad language. So don't be alarmed when I use prostitution. That's the better word that I really want to use this morning that I think God uses in order to wake up his numb people. But we'll wait till a little bit later on down the road before I start. Let's see if I get a second date before that happens. And here lies the scandal of Hosea. At first you think the scandal is God telling a prophet to go marry a prostitute. Because after all, doesn't God know we don't, we don't hang out with those types of people? But soon you find out that this is just the shadow of the real scandal. Which is God loves prostitutes as well. In fact... He's married to one, you and me. Hosea and God both love prostitutes. And until you see yourself this way, you won't appreciate the book of Hosea or the story of the Bible for that matter until you feel what your sin is like to God. You will never appreciate how far he's willing to go to rescue you. Until you see yourself like this, you won't be able to celebrate just how amazing his love is for you. Even though you're a prostitute, Jesus will love you to the end. Hosea is also about the MRI. And the reason is, Hosea is amazing in its ability to reveal the human heart in its fallen condition. It gives us angles on our brokenness and sin that help us clear a path to return to the Lord. So if you really want to understand what makes you tick, a careful reading of the book of Hosea will get you there. For example, Hosea reveals our sin as idolatry. It is setting our affections on something other than God as the functional center of our lives. Hosea shows us how each of us is a sinner and a sufferer. And what I mean by this is the way we suffer shapes the way that we sin. So as you behave badly, and you will, particularly when it is repetitive bad behavior, you need to understand that your acting out is often an attempt to heal yourself. 
Heal yourself of the wounds that you have received in your life. That doesn't make you any less responsible for your sin, but what it does is give you some clarity as to why you sin the way that you do. And to show you how the healing you're looking for can only be found in the Lord. And that's something that we need to remember about an MRI. An MRI doesn't heal anybody. It just reveals the problem, right? It reveals that you have an issue. So the book of Hosea is going to reveal that issue, and then it's going to show us what the answer is. Hosea reveals the under, uh, shows us how under conviction, that rather than running to God for mercy, we run to moralism. We run to behavior modification. Do this, check. Don't do that, check. Okay, I must be good with God. You don't love God for God, but you love him because you think that by coloring within the lines, you'll be able to get the goodies that you want from him. Oh, what I want to say about that. But we're on a first date. When you read Hosea, you are looking into the mirror of your soul like nothing else in the whole Bible. Now, because the Lord is committed to his bride... And he is committed to them as their, as their faithful husband. He wants them back. And so he motivates them in the first place by threats of discipline. It's a way to move them away from their infidelity. He says, keep it up and you'll face adversity. And the same is true for you and me. God's grace comes into your life in different ways. Most of the time it comes to you in way of relief. He makes your life easier. He gets you out of jams. He lets you get away with it. And what happens is, is this happens so often that you get used to it. You assume it. You figure God will never treat you any differently. But the Bible is clear that there is such a thing as the grace and discipline of difficulty. An uncomfortable grace that is meant to bring you back to him. And this is the point of all the threats of the book of Hosea. He's not getting back to them because of their sin. Adversity wouldn't, would not be a just punishment for spiritual adultery. The only just punishment would be for you to face eternal consequences for sinning against the infinite love of God. That would be punishment for your sin. So when God's uncomfortable grace comes into your life, it's not because he's getting back at you. It is because he is pulling you back to him. When you're running away from him, guess what God will do sometimes? He will break your legs so that you cannot run. You know what we will tend to do? We will then try to use our arms. He will break your arms to keep you from pulling yourself away from him. But there's another way to motivate you to return, and it's a stronger way. And that's by promising to do good to you no matter what. That even though you have betrayed him a thousand times, that he will love you no matter what. So he promises a day when he will restore his people, when they will turn back to him. And, build, and built into this is that when they do return to him, he's not going to be standing there with a disgusted look on his face. 
tapping his foot with his arms folded, saying, I told you so. But when they do return, they will realize that he's been eagerly waiting for them the whole time. Think prodigal son there. This is how the Lord feels about you. He is enthusiastically looking around the bend, yearning for your return to him. He can't wait to see you and embrace you and tell you again just how much he loves you. So what do we do in the face of such great love? I'd like to unpack today's message with you under four headings. The call to repentance, false repentance, the motive of repentance, and true repentance. The call to repentance can be found in chapter 10, verse 12. He says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the, t- for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, What should we think of a farmer who allowed his finest fields to lie fallow year after year, yet men neglect their souls, and besides being unprofitable, these inward fields become full of weeds and exceedingly foul. You see to everything else, will you not see to your own souls? And isn't that true about our lives? Don't we get busy working on breaking the next video game record? Don't we get busy with homeschool or chores and all the things that we think life is about that we pour our time and energy into, but our own soul, we have a tendency to leave fallow. The key to understanding the whole thing is the phrase fallow ground which refers to a garden that has been plowed, but left unseated for at least a season. It has a way of working. It was a way of working your garden uh, and keeping it from being overworked. Uh, You plow it, and then you just let it sit there and rest. Then when it was time to work the garden again, you'd break up that crusty top layer and get to work. What you're doing is you're breaking up the weeds and you're breaking up the thorns giving the garden a new beginning. So when the Lord says, break up your fallow ground, he's saying, start fresh. Start anew. You know, like today, how you pretend like you're going to keep some New Year's resolution, right? That it's already almost 11 hours into and you've probably already broken it. And if you haven't, don't worry, lunch will be here soon. You can break it then. But the Lord's call to us this morning is literally a fresh start. It is a new beginning. It's the same kind of call that God gives in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3. When, the, when God calls Israel back to himself, he says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. The natural product of the corrupt heart is weeds and thorns. And what the Lord would say is stop trying to sow among weeds. Let us trust the Lord to create in us a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within us. So what does it look like to break up your fallow ground? 
Well, it starts with admitting, taking full responsibility for yourself before God, confessing your hardness of heart, your hard soil, telling the truth about you, your thorns, your weeds. And of course, it's not that God doesn't already know this about you. He's God, right? It's that by being honest about your condition or the condition of your heart, you're able to see your need for forgiveness and healing and restoration. One thing that you and I must remember is that we are the Michael Jordan of the half-truth, the partial confession, portraying yourself as better than what you really are. Why do you and I try to fool God? Because we are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure and ashamed. And rather than admitting that you're as bad as you really are and running to God's promise to meet you in your mess, what do you do? You try to clean yourself up, right? You deal with your guilt by blame-shifting or minimizing or rationalizing your sin. You use a thousand methods to convince yourself and God that even though you're guilty, who isn't? I mean, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I don't sit on the back row. I'm better than that guy. You deal with your sin by comparing yourself to others. This gives you a sense that things must be okay between you and God. Because after all, I'm not as bad as that guy. So rather than making an honest confession, you offer him your half confession. You deal with your shame by cleaning yourself up a little bit. You avoid talking with God about what you've done till you have time to pad your resume with a few good behaviors. Anybody ever been there before? You need to counterbalance all the bad things you've done. I have to go and show God that this time I'm serious. I need to add some good over here against all the bad that I've done. That way you don't have to feel or admit you're as dirty as you actually are. But the beauty of the gospel is that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But the Lord isn't just faithful to forgive you when you confess your sins to him. He's also, and listen, this should sound strange to your ears, he is just to forgive you of your sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, our, uh, all unrighteousness, which means that when we confess, he doesn't just sweep your sins under the rug and pretend as though you did not do them. Once you make a sin, so to speak, that sin cannot be unmade. It must be punished. Either you will bear the punishment of your sin, or because God is also merciful and loving, Jesus will bear that punishment in your place. This is what makes God just to forgive you. He is just because your sin has been punished in Jesus so that he can justly forgive you. 
And therefore, you can know that you're forgiven because Jesus has actually been punished for the particular sin in your heart. It's actually been done. Because your sin has been nailed to the cross, you don't have to be. See, this is... We need to see Jesus, not just hear a message of how much of how much God loves you. You can turn on network uh, Christian television and hear messages about how much God loves you. But do you actually know who it is, the you is, and God loves you? It's seeing my sin against the backdrop of what God has done. And this is where I'm saying break up your fallow ground begins. Your new beginning starts with admitting you're really, you really are, No, no, no. You really are that bad. From here, you're in a position to begin to live a new life in a new way. To sow for your self-righteousness, or as Paul puts it, to perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. You break up the ground by confessing your sin, and you sow righteous seeds by changing how you live. Now listen, don't get too worked up right now. I'm going to take you somewhere with this. The last thing I want to do to you on New Year's Day after a long, hard holiday is add more work to you. But don't worry. We're going to, we're going to, you're going to see some relief here in a minute. And this is because repentance ends with a change of life. Now, you may struggle with the the same things over and over and over again, right? Has that, has that not happened to us? We, we ask for repentance or we come to the Lord, we, we, we till that ground, we break up the fallow ground, we repent, and then we're still dealing with sin A. Anybody been there before? Or do you just forget, you just ask for forgiveness and you never deal with sin A again? We move on, don't we? To sin B or sin C or sin Z. No, no, what usually happens is we still end up in sin A. But there will be change, even if that change isn't perfect change. You will see change. One writer puts it this way, that in a dark room, even a three-watt light bulb allows you to see. And sometimes our change can be like this. Our change can seem small. And it is uh, what always accompanies true repentance is at least some change. You will see some level of change, which leads me to my second point, false repentance. Hosea chapter 7, verse 14 through 16 says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds for grain and wine. They they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Verse 16, I believe, holds the key here. It says they return, but not upward. That is, it looks like they've turned back to God, but they haven't. And what is the sign that they haven't? Look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds. For grain and wine they gnash themselves, they rebel against me. In other words, there is sorrow over their sin and its consequences, but they're not sorry for what their sin has done to God. You ever been there before? You ever sorry that you got caught? Or sorry that your sin has 
left you somewhere. Or we could put it this way. I could say that they are sad for how their sin hurts and costs them. No grain, no wine, but they're not sad for how their sin has hurt and cost God. This goes to the motive of your repentance. Everybody at least once, and once is a joke, in their lives feels bad over their sin. The question is, why do you feel bad over your sin? Is it because you never thought yourself capable of such a thing? You ever said this to yourself? Man, I should be better than this. Is it fear of being caught? Is that why you're sorrowful? Do you feel bad because how your sin hurts other people like your wife and your kids? Or maybe you feel bad because you hate how your sin makes you look to other people. True repentance. Listen, true repentance isn't about you. True repentance is about him. Sadness over how your sin affects you isn't repentance. Your broken hardness, heartedness must be rooted in how you've hurt the Lord and broke his heart, not your own. Now then, how can you get to the place where hurting the Lord is what grieves you the most about your sin? Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, that they came to Bel Peor and concentrated, consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. Now, do you see the enthusiasm and love of God for you in this text? There is no reason that Israel should have been to God like grapes in the desert, considering what they and what you were like when the Lord found you. Wouldn't it be more apt to say that when the Lord found us, it was like finding dung in the desert? Wouldn't that be more apt to say than like uh, grapes in the desert that he found us? So the whole relationship that God has with you is defined from beginning to end in terms of undeserved love. But then what happened? Read the end of verse 10. That they came to Bel Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. So then, how might we describe the nature of our sin in this text? As a crime against love. And it's remembering that. That this is where the deepest grief always comes from. Not when you sin against the law, when you break the rules, but when you sin against love. In the movie Lame is Rob, the main character, Valjean, was in prison for about 20 years. And when he violates his probation, he is taken care of by a godly bishop who feeds him and gives him a place to sleep. While there in the middle of the night, Valjean decides to steal the bishop's silver and he escapes into the night. Valjean gets caught 
But when he is brought before the bishop and the authorities, the bishop says that not only was the silver his gift to Valjean, but that he had forgotten the most valuable silver of all, four candlesticks. Valjean can't believe the grace that he has shown. And he has grief, which is shown in this song. He sings, Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a, like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit came to move my life? Is there another way to go? So let me ask you this morning, was Valjean brokenhearted, heart, was his brokenheartedness over the fact that he broke the law, that he broke the law of not stealing, or was his brokenheartedness over the fact that he had sinned against such great love? It was seeing his sin against the backdrop of amazing love that changed his life forever. And what I'm saying leads to my final point, which is true repentance. True repentance begins with a heart that feels horrible, guilty, sad, and ashamed because you have sinned against love. Not because you have broken the rules or you didn't color within the lines but because you have sinned against such great love shown towards you. The book of Hosea is just giving the beginning. Only the introduction to the love of God. Because he is going to demonstrate his love in a way that far outweighs anything that the people of God had ever experienced to that point in their history. Because he is going to send his son. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says... And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He took our place. The end of Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 says, It is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. The word righteousness here doesn't refer to right behavior. That wouldn't make much sense. Instead, the word refers to the right ordering of human life. Righteousness in the sense of your behavior is certainly, and we would certainly say, is included in that. But the reign of the Lord's righteousness is bigger than behavior. It's a word that refers to the restoration of everything that's gone wrong in the world. You know, like the sermon series that Drew's been preaching here lately 
uh, on Revelation and the return of our Lord and how he's going to make all things new. That's why one scholar loosely translates the term righteousness with salvation. It is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain salvation upon you. And how does he do that? He does it finally and fully through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is not your good behavior. It is not you coloring within the lines. It is not you paying for your sin. It is the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. That's the final and full salvation that God promises And the point here is that when you see all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, when you see how he promises to rain salvation on you in spite of all of what you deserve, when you see that kind of love, the kind of love that says, I will love you no matter what, and if I have to break your legs to keep you from running from me, I will. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many many times you have went to other lovers and given your heart to other lovers. I will love you no matter what. That kind of love breaks your heart to sin against him. And you won't want to do it anymore. And it will be for the right reasons. Seeing Jesus embrace you in your filth causes you To want to run to him. So how do we get to the place of true repentance? It's by focusing on the love. It's not by a list of things to do. You've had plenty of lists this last month, right? A lot of Christmas lists, a lot of fighting people in parking lots and and, and, and stores and the happy time of the year, everybody's angry because traffic on I-4 is impossible. And then when you go buy this massive load of stuff, you got to take it home and wrap it all. And then you have to double wrap it so the kids don't hold it up to the light and see through it. So it's all this work, work, work. Happy, happy Jesus comes to season, right? All this work you have to do. But here's what I would call you to do this morning. Focus on the love of, of, of God. Make knowing and understanding that love which is beyond comprehension the chief aim of your life. And I believe the fuel found for breaking up your fallow ground can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. A 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon who walked into a uh, Methodist, I believe it's Methodist church, maybe wrong there, but into a church at 15 years old to get out of a blizzard found himself listening to a sermon from a layman because the pastor couldn't make it that, that, that day because of the snow blizzard. And he read from Isaiah a verse that would call you to look to the Lord. 
You know what Spurgeon said about that? He said, any young man, any old man, rich, poor, whoever you are, wherever you're from, look. Look unto him. That, that's what I would call you to do today. The more that we look unto him, the Bible tells us the more that we are transformed into his image. We behold Christ. Here's your list. Behold him. As you behold him, guess what's going to happen? You're going you're to begin to be transformed into the image of Christ and you're going to find yourself in the garden breaking up fallow ground. You're not going to see it as work. You're going to be asking, where's the tractor? Where is it? Because the more that I break up, the deeper I go, the far more that I dig down to see what, what's in there that I need to repent of, the more I see of what God has saved me from. The far, you know, some people think that God only had to go like this. Just want like two inches down to, to rescue them. Luke 7 tells us, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. Don't be afraid to admit before God who you are. The more that you find that you have been forgiven of, the more that you will love. So today I call you to look unto him. Behold Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you that in a time and season of, that we can drive ourselves crazy with all the doing that we must get done and, and be so exhausted at the running around. Lord, often we lay on ourselves. We, we forget the gospel. We, we, we run away from the gospel. We run to anything but the gospel. We, we try to fix ourselves and, oh, I got this. I don't have to come to you, God. I, I can fix this. I can repair this part. Or I'm not really as bad as it seems or this isn't really bad as it seems and we just lay all these things on top of us, God. And we do all this running around within our spirit and our soul. And today, God, I pray that we can be honest with you. May the Spirit show us what needs to be broken up in our garden. The weeds that need to be pulled and the work that needs to be done. And that, Lord, that before we go and try to start working at all those things, God, may we look. May we behold May we see you today. May we be transformed into the image of Christ. And may that transformation, Lord, when we behold you and we are being transformed into your image, God, may we find ourselves not in our neighbor's garden, in ours. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. That's the call on our lives, uh, not only today, but all of this year. Uh, so thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning as we uh, venture into the year. Dale, thank you for bringing God's word to us this morning. What a great encouragement and hope and promise for us. So receive the promise of this benediction. The, this is the Father's heart. It is, his, uh, it is the good shepherd's um, words of promise to care for you, not only today, but all during this year. Uh, so go and live this year out of the hope of these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Amen.